0: Interesting topic, this one. Now, many uh, will be going uh, onto the likes of Vote Compass before the election, confidently ticking what's important to them, knowing where they stand thanks to the robust debates that have been in the media. Then you get to the immigration questions. Haven't thought about that in a while. We have record immigration right now, but where's the election debate on it? And that is what Distinguished Professor from Massey University, Paul Spoonley, is asking. Professor Spoonley, kia ora. kia ora.
1: Wallace.
0: It's interesting because that drew eyebrows with me. I thought, well, there has been quite a few debates now, and there's been a bit on immigration, not a lot. Are the political parties thinking big picture when it comes to immigration?
1: No, I don't think they are. But they're also, as your earlier discussion with Paora indicated, there's, There are other issues around race that have become more important. But the thing is, Wallace, if we go back to 1996 and think about the establishment of New Zealand First, what do you remember about that election campaign? It was that anti-immigrant debate that really dominated the 1996 general election and almost virtual silence in this case.
2: Uh, Uh, Paul, that's big. Perhaps because the, protagonist, the main protagonist in that anti-immigration debate is at the moment not so anti-immigration, isn't that true? Yes. Well,
1: yeah, well I, I looked at New Zealand First when I wrote that article and they've released some, um, some uh, policy since then. But when I first looked at it a few days ago, what they did was they had a, a reference to the 2020 New Zealand First immigration policy. So, they didn't even have 2023 immigration policy. And the great thing was they said we need a population policy. I agree with that, but really didn't uh, elaborate. And it's. it's uh, have you heard it in any of the debates? I, I,
0: I can't think of anything. And yet, Paul, we have these unusually high, perhaps record high in numbers in an annual net gain of 100,000 people.
1: Yeah, and it's extraordinary. Well, I mean. I've looked back to a decade ago, 2013. We had 36,000 arrivals, and we had a net gain of 13,000. This year, 208,000 arrivals, and a net gain knocking on 100,000. You'd you'd, you'd think, with the size of it, all the sort of implications that the uh, the Productivity Commission raised last year about the infrastructural deficit, the over reliance on migrant workers, the the lack of public policy statements and engagement. You'd think you'd think that. Given those numbers, it would be a concern, but apparently not.
3: Um, Kia ora, Paul. It's Ruth here. I really welcomed your um, article. And one of the quotes where you said, long-term population strategy is required, and it absolutely is. I see it every day in my work, my line of work, where... um, there just doesn't seem to be any cultural competence um, with, with, a, with sections of the community uh, where they need justice responses, but police, courts, um, support services aren't there to support them or aren't there to understand their cultures, let alone help them through our process. And I can see how we need that population strategy for obviously wider than justice, right? Like no one, I think you're right, there's no eyes on the ball.
1: No, 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 there aren't. I like the idea of cultural competence, Ruth. I think that's a great one. But um, th- there are two issues here. One is that we're bringing in this large volume of migrants and not doing a lot in terms of what happens after arrival. And so we're getting issues of volume. And then, of course, exploitation, the lack of uh, scrutiny of documents, mm. uh, uh, applications which are just not um, not truthful, and and then, of course, we've got the implications for New Zealand. What what, what does it mean to have all these people arriving in New Zealand? Mm. Are they filling the sort of labour gaps? Are they suitably qualified? In your terms, are they culturally competent?
3: You know, there are big
1: questions that are that are raised by oh. the rise of th- immigrants on
3: top of housing and cost of living and all of those challenges that you know, we already yes. have um, from an infrastructure perspective. No. And, and,
1: and, that was, and that was the Productivity Commission point, that when you get population growth, and it looks as though we get population growth this year of 23 2.4%, when the average for the OECD is 0.6%. When you get uh, population growth like that, of course you are stretching your ability to provide infrastructure and housing.
2: Simon? That's true, isn't it? But um, it, it presumably is also true that that doesn't mean we couldn't be growing the infrastructure, Paul. Uh, no. Um, yeah. And the, uh,
1: irony, the irony, Simon, is that the, the migrant workforce is critical to growing that infrastructure. So we're caught yes. a little. Yeah.
2: The, the difficulty is that when we need to grow our infrastructure quickly, if you think about housing, you think about transport, uh, you think about the sewage system and, and uh, hospitals and schools, um, At the same time, we are having a great deal of trouble as a society in working out how to do those things in ways that make sense in terms of the climate, uh, in terms of the efficiency of cities, uh, and in terms of quality of life. Uh, Boil that down to we can't keep putting more cars on our roads, but people have a great deal of trouble uh, grasping the idea that we've got to spend the money on public transport. Uh, We can't keep ruining quality farmland and spreading sprawling into the countryside Uh, but people have a great deal of difficulty understanding we need uh, denser cities Uh, so those things the the pressures there become really acute
1: they do become acute and i would draw people's attention to the productivity commission report last year which raised all of those and provided good evidence and the irony simon is that migrants come here not to make money they're not, they're not going to get the sort of salaries that you would get in Australia, they come here for the quality of yeah. life yeah. <laughs> the irony is that they're coming here to enjoy our quality of life at the same time that that flow is really putting pressure on our resources and, and
2: I guess that's as true for the much needed doctors as it is for those terribly abused migrants um, who uh, came here hoping to get um, restaurant jobs and, and barely even get that.
1: Yes, if you look at certain sectors like IT, horticulture, um, medical, um, the healthcare system, abs- they've now become absolutely reliant on migrant mm. workers, no. whether they're permanent or temporary. Which
2: so just, also, which I was going to say, which yeah. also means that those industries, on the whole, have not been able to make the, their work attractive to people who were born here. Uh, and there's a real question for for, for all of us in that. So just there? on
0: that, fi- final question, because uh, I just I just want to sort of uh, sneak in Terry's text here. Uh, good on Paul for bringing up the elephant in the room: immigration. We desperately need a population policy. Please broach the subject. Do we need a population policy?
1: Um, yes, Wallace, and I'll keep saying yes because very often immigration is our default population policy. Uh, it's due to uh, workforce shortages. But we, all, we should also be talking about declining fertility, rapid ageing, and the fact that most of our growth in the next two decades will occur in Auckland.
0: Really interesting stuff, Professor I Appreciate your time. Kia ora. Uh, as Kia ora. always, yeah, that's a distinguished professor from uh, Massey University who says that um, the debates are missing a very big topic: immigration and population. Wallace Chapman, I am a Christian. And I find it very strange that your panel assumes that Christians don't believe in dinosaurs. Didn't assume that. No. No, What an absurd stereotype. Did you assume that?
3: I didn't. I said, let's play the policies rather than the person.
0: Well, I can say that um, my dad uh, was a Methodist minister. And he believed in dinosaurs. (laughs) Never asked him directly, but there were some dinosaur books in his office. Um,
2: Yes, I I, I, I have... Religious, um, yeah, vicars and so on in my family too. They all yep. believe in dinosaurs.
0: Um, a huge response regarding our Neil Diamond Week, so thank you to that. Oh, I just want to sneak this in. Sweet Caroline reminds me of our eldest daughter, Caroline, who died, <laughs> at age, uh, who died at age 49 of cancer. A lovely song, brings sadness, but also some really happy memories. So thank oh you for playing dear. it. Uh, love all the Neil Diamond songs. Uh, it's 14 away from 5. We have Ruth Money and Simon Wilson today. Enter this. Is a time for an inquiry into Auckland's ferry services, laid out in a very strong opinion piece in the New Zealand Herald, and it comes as no surprise to those who use them that ferry services in Tāmaki Makaro, leave a bit to be desired. The latest being the Gulf Harbour ferry service with a chronic cancellation rate. Other cities like Sydney seem to be able to offer services. Why can't we? From October 1, AT has reduced that service more with an 83% reduction to the normal timetable. With us is John Watson, Auckland Council for Albany Award. Kia ora, John. Hi, Wallace. Do you get the ferry yourself, John?
4: Well, I try to. Um, a lot of the time, uh, like the, the other patrons, I'm, I'm either on a taxi um, or a bus or like other people, jump back in my car because it's just too unreliable. What's going on, John? Well, it's probably been going on for a long time now, probably the last two years, uh, you know, since November 21, things have kind of really deteriorated. Some runs, more than others, and some runs, to be fair, are largely unaffected, but ones like the Gulf Harbour run that you uh, quoted, it's... Um, uh, cancellation rate was up over 50, percent and then starting from last week, th- they're effectively running 16% of their their normal timetable. So that that's really decimated what was once you know a very successful and very thriving uh, ferry service that the community really appreciated. In fact, quite a number of the people out there in the end of Fongalprae bought out this way because of that ferry service.
0: Well let's I mean uh, Ruth you're at the cold face so to speak you rely on the ferries does this square with your experiences?
3: You're speaking my language John Um, so Waiheke resident uh, you I feel your pain the problem that we have is that we can't get on the bus or the car as an option we miss our medical appointments we miss our school our exam it's an absolute debacle and I totally support any calls for a review um, but more importantly a transformation so that these damn things actually start working
4: again. Yeah I I agree absolutely Ruth. Uh, each, Each run has its own challenges. I guess all of them come down to reliability but particularly in the case of Somewhere like yeah, it's it's even more important that that you have a service that that you can rely on that does turn up, um, because people don't have any other choice. But even with people who do have other choices. The choices just don't stack up. So, for instance, from from um trying to get down in a bus or a car, there's absolutely no comparison between the, you know, the 50 minutes straight down to Auckland t- downtown on the ferry. So, yeah, absolutely.
2: John, it's Simon Wilson here. Um, I I know that the ferries um, are part of public transport, which is the controlled by Auckland Transport, and I also know ferries are exempt from some of the rules around public transport, courtesy of the government regulations, but you're the Auckland Council's Chair of the Transport and Infrastructure Committee. Do you feel that you and your committee have some responsibility in this?
4: Yes, we do, Simon, and since um, since last year, and certainly since February of this year, when the concerns really took off right around the region the the committee has been pretty relentless in trying to a find out what's happening what why there are these issues and b, hoping for some sort of change in fact more than hoping for some change trying to bring about change in some of these runs that have been particularly hard hit the reality is unfortunately that the uh, It's not the Council and certainly not the Transport Committee that structures the contracts, that has the oversight of um, whether those contracts are fulfilled or not. That is entirely the realm of Auckland Transport. So as much as this committee um, has attempted to to highlight it and, and to hold people to account, it's really beyond the realm of that committee to affect this sort of change. And in some respects, it's it's a it's a reflection of what has happened in previous years hence the need for i think a, an independent body to come over and to investigate what's happened otherwise it will just continue
2: I, I i understand what you're saying there john it, it... But at the same time, Auckland Transport is subject to a letter of intent. It's been told very explicitly by the council, which was elected last year, um, led by the mayor Wayne Brown, um, that uh, Auckland Transport has to become much more responsive to uh, Aucklanders' needs. Um, you've had a year in which um, you've watched this happening. Um, uh, some Aucklanders might say that there should have been more progress on this by now
4: well we we certainly haven't just been sitting by idly and watching it Simon We've been turning up to packed public meetings of three hundred odd plus people whose travel lives have been severely impacted by this and, and hearing some pretty harrowing stories of of how people you know have nearly lost jobs or turned up in ferries uh, you know not been a no show so we've had our ability to to actually get a sense of the, the wide ranging dissatisfaction. But as I said, ultimately it's what's in those contracts that matter that's in right. terms of enforcement, in terms of penalties, and in the willingness of the organization that's responsible for that to enforce it. Well, and I guess a... if you were if you were saying to date what 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 has happened, well, you know, a sixteen percent timetable um, isn't exactly proof no, of stunning progress. We'll have to
0: return to this, but uh, there's John Watson there looking for an inquiry into Auckland's ferry services. I'd like to hear from uh, someone says, a ferry is not a right. If you choose to live on Waiheke, then you have to realise it might be difficult to travel.
3: Oh, OK then.
0: So, thanks for coming over. That yeah. was all I want to say. Thanks for popping. Anyway, over. Uh, your thoughts on that? Most welcome. Do you are you affected by uh, Auckland's theories? Now, finally, on this program, this really caught my attention. Completely different topic. Recall the handkerchief. I grew up with a hanky. Wouldn't be allowed out of the door without one. The hanky was your trusty sidekick. You always had a handkerchief. Were handkerchiefs or tissues? Which is better for our health and the planet? Was a topic in the conversation and says that such a simple square of cloth has a really complex history. With us is Mark Patrick Taylor, the chief environmental scientist uh, at EPA Victoria, Uh, An Honorary Professor at Macquarie University. Professor Taylor, welcome to the panel on RNZ.
1: Thank you
5: very much. Really pleased to be here, and I'm actually pleased to be in the country, down in Wellington.
0: Oh, good on you, Mark. the, the, The plane landed safely. I was amazed at the history. Henry VIII owned an extensive collection, some embossed with gold and silver, but also a simple head covering. Hankies go right back.
5: They go right back until the Roman to the Roman periods when they were called a sudarium, and which is a sweat cloth or to as a mask for the mouth of the face and I'll be honest with you I didn't really know the full history of this until I embarked on this journey which I wrote with my colleague who's actually also uh, a New Zealander uh, Hester Joyce who's at La Trobe University but the, the history of the handkerchief is fascinating like you I grew up with the handkerchief stuffed in my pocket I used to go down to the beach on the east coast of Yorkshire, where I lived in Britain, and I'd see the old guys there with a knotted handkerchief on their head to protect their balding heads from the the very unhot rays of the sun in Yorkshire. So they've got multiple uses, but they have a long history. And um, as you say, Henry VIII had, had them. Um, embossed in gold, um, and also people have used them for all sorts of purposes as, as signals for love and
0: infidelity. Well, let's go around the panel. Um, so uh, uh, love, infidelity, blowing your nose. I haven't used – you know why this fascinated me? I haven't used a handkerchief, Simon Wilson, in decades, Okay, but I always had one.
2: Right. So my father was one of those men who – knotted his handkerchief in the corners. My father went bald bald in his 20s uh, and was always um, worried about it um, and therefore wore the knotted handkerchief on his head whenever he was gardening or out in the sun on the weekends. He died a few years ago, and I inherited his handkerchief collection, and I have to tell you, Wallace, I have one in my pocket today.
0: He used no. no. <laughs> he's, he's, got, he's got a handkerchief <laughs> because I don't use it for the same thing. He used it. <laughs> All right, do you have a question for uh,
3: Mark? But,
5: so, Ruth, say again,
0: sorry. Ma- 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 Mark,
3: Ma- Ma- it's Ruth here. I am. I-, um, I too have got my father's embossed handkerchiefs that I do not use. However, I'm a fan of an aloe vera tissue.
2: Sorry, contribution.
5: Handkerchiefs have panache. But tissues don't, don't in the same way. No. And it, there's lots of, if you Google it, there's lots of images. What's the of climate riparian. argument? The climate argument is the consumption of energy and resources for the production of cotton for a handkerchief is much greater than the tissue. Tissues are often made from recycled paper. Yeah. And even if you get organic cotton, which is better, the problem is organic cotton requires more land to produce the same yield as you would get for non-organic cotton. And, and there was a survey, a piece of work done in 2012, which looked at this issue and it came down on the side of tissues. And I was actually quite surprised yeah. by that
3: myself personally. That, that is surprising. Well, something just That's very died in me
2: today, but there you go. Yeah. The
3: thought of walking around with a tissue or a, thing full of your bodily fluid needs to You can no, throw them away you, <laughs> Not your handkerchief you can no, no. I, yeah. I
5: think the problem with the handkerchief, if you use it and you stuff it back in your pocket yeah. and you're rummaging around for coins or a key or something, you get the coins or the key out and you touch a door knob or another handle, you're just reinfecting that surface and the evidence shows quite clear that the viruses do survive quite an extended period of time, as we found out through COVID, so you risk recontaminating uh. other people, so mm. the tissue you blow it Blow into it, dispose of it, wash your hands. Happy days.
2: That's a good argument, though. You can have an exclusive handkerchief pocket.
0: I can't believe the, the hanky story is coming through, Mark. I mean, goodness, OMG! I recall my granddad with a knotted hanky on his head, circa nineteen seventy nine. Uh, there are people love their hankies, Mark. Are you? Are you going to write a, ju- a history of the handkerchief?
5: With my job, I barely have the time to write these articles. I'd love to
0: do. I'd love to do. And,
2: you know, the world's collapsing around us. I know. (laughs) Probably because of my handkerchief We need a
0: history of the hanky right now, Mark, in New Zealand. Uh, Lovely to have you on, however briefly. That's Mark Taylor, the uh, Chief Environmental Scientist at the EPA Victoria. And it's Neil Diamond Week pre-election on the panel. Stay with us. Simon Wilson, Ruth Money, thanks for being with us. Yeah. Sure, no. Back tomorrow 3.45. Lisa Owen, Checkpoint. is next?
1: You and me, we're going style. Rose, your store-bought woman. But you make me sing like a guitar humming. So hang on to me.